Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 1, The Good for Man. Subject of our inquiry, all human activities aim at some good. Some goods subordinate to others. 1. Every art and every inquiry, and similarly every action and pursuit, is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. But a certain difference is found among ends. Some are activities, others are products apart from the activities that produce them. Where there are ends apart from the actions, it is the nature of the products to be better than the activities. Now, as there are many actions, arts, and sciences, their ends are also are many. The end of the medical art is health. That of shipbuilding is a vessel. That of strategy, victory. That of economics, wealth. But where such arts fall under a single capacity, as brittle-making and the other arts concerned with the equipment of horses fall under the art of riding, and this and every military action under strategy, in the same way other arts fall under yet others. In all of these, the ends of the master arts are to be preferred to all the subordinate ends. For it is for the sake of the former that the latter are pursued. It makes no difference whether the activities themselves are the ends of the actions or something else apart from the activities, as in the case of the sciences just mentioned. The science of the good for man is politics. 2. If, then, there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for the sake of this, and if we do not choose everything for the sake of something else, for at that rate the process would go on to infinity, so that our desire would be empty and vain, clearly this must be the good and the chief good. Will not the knowledge of it, then, have a great influence on life? Shall we not, like archers who have a mark to aim at, be more likely to hit upon what is right? If so, we must try, in outline at least, to determine what it is, and of which of the sciences or capacities it is the object. It would seem to belong to the most authoritative art and that which is most truly the master art. And politics appears to be of this nature, for it is this that ordains which of the sciences should be studied in a state, and which each class of citizens should learn and up to what point they should learn them. And we see even the most highly esteemed of capacities to fall under this category, e.g. strategy, economics, rhetoric. Now, 
Since politics uses the rest of the sciences, and since, again, it legislates as to what we are to do and what we are to abstain from, the end of this science must include those of the others, so that this end must be the good for man. For even if the end is the same for a single man and for a state, that of the state seems at all events something greater and more complete, whether to attain or to preserve. Though it is worthwhile to attain the end merely for one man, it is finer and more godlike to attain it for a nation or for city-states. These, then, are the ends at which our inquiry aims, since it is political science in one sense of that term. 3. Nature of the science. We must not expect more precision than the subject matter admits of. The student should have reached years of discretion. Our discussion will be adequate if it has as much clearness as the subject matter admits of, for precision is not to be sought for alike in all discussions, any more than in all the products of the crafts. Now, fine and just actions which political science investigates, exhibit much variety and fluctuation so that they may be thought to exist only by convention and not by nature. And goods exhibit a similar fluctuation because they bring harm to many people. For before now, men have been undone by reason of their wealth and others by reason of their courage. We must be content, then, in speaking of such subjects and with such premises to indicate the truth roughly and in outline and in speaking about things which are only for the most part true and with premises of the same kind to reach conclusions that are no better. In the same spirit, therefore, should each type of statement be received? For it is the mark of an educated man to look for precision in each class of things, just so far as the nature of the subject admits. It is evidently equally foolish to accept probable reasoning from a mathematician and to demand from a rhetorician demonstrative proofs. Now each man judges well the things he knows, and of these he is a good judge. And so the man who has been educated in a subject is a good judge of that subject. And the man who has received an all-round education is a good judge in general. Hence, a young man is not a proper hearer of lectures on political science, for he is inexperienced in the actions that occur later in life. But its discussions start from these and are about these, and further, since he tends to follow his passions, his study will be vain and unprofitable, because the end aimed at is not knowledge but action.
And it makes no difference whether he is young in years or youthful in character. The defect does not depend on time, but on his living and pursuing each successive object as passion directs. For to such persons as to the incontinent, knowledge brings no profit. But to those who desire and act in accordance with a rational principle, knowledge about such matters will be of great benefit. These remarks about the student, the sort of treatment to be expected, and the purpose of the inquiry may be taken as our preface. What is the good for man? It is generally agreed to be happiness, but there are various views as to what happiness is. What is required at the start is an unreasoned conviction about the facts, such as is produced by a good upbringing. 4. Let us resume our inquiry and state, in view of the fact that all knowledge and every pursuit aims at some good. What it is that we say political science aims at, and what is the highest of all goods achievable by action. Verbally, there is very general agreement, for both the general run of men and people of superior refinement say that it is happiness, and identifying living well and faring well with being happy. But with regard to what happiness is, they differ, and the many do not give the same account as the wise. For the former think it is some plain and obvious thing, like pleasure, wealth, or honour. They differ, however, from one another, and often even the same man identifies it with different things, with health when he is ill, with wealth when he is poor. But Conscious of their ignorance, they admire those who proclaim some great thing that is above their comprehension. Now some thought that apart from these many goods, there is another which is good in itself and causes the goodness of all these as well. To examine all the opinions that have been held were perhaps somewhat fruitless, enough to examine those that are most prevalent or that seem to be arguable. Let us not fail to notice, however, that there is a difference between arguments from and those to the first principles. For Plato, too, was right in raising this question and asking, as he used to do, are we on the way from or to the first principles? There is a difference, as there is in a race course, between the course from the judges to the turning point and the way back. For while we must begin with what is evident, things are evident in two ways, some to us, some without qualification. Presumably, then, we must begin with things evident to us. Hence, anyone 
who is to listen intelligibly to lectures about what is noble and just and, generally, about the subjects of political science, must have been brought up in good habits. For the fact is a starting point, and if this is sufficiently plain to him, he will not need the reason as well. And the man who has been well brought up has or can easily get starting points. And as for him who neither has nor can get them, let him hear the words of Hesiod. Far best is he who knows him all things himself. Good he that hearkens when men counsel right. But he who neither knows nor lays to heart another's wisdom is a useless wight. 5. Discussion of the popular views that the good is pleasure, honour, wealth. A fourth kind of life, that of contemplation, deferred for future discussion. Let us, however, resume our discussion from the point at which we dis digressed. To judge from the lives that men lead, most men and men of the most vulgar type seem, not without some ground, to identify the good or happiness with pleasure, which is the reason why they love the life of enjoyment. For there are, we may say, three prominent types of life. That just mentioned, the political, and thirdly, the contemplative life. Now, now the mass of mankind are evidently quite slavish in their tastes, preferring a life suitable to beasts. But they get some ground for their view from the fact that many of those in high places share the tastes of Sardanapalus. A consideration of the prominent types of life show that people of superior refinement and of active disposition identify happiness with honour. For that is, roughly speaking, the end of political life. But it seems too superficial to be what we are looking for, since it is thought to depend on those who bestow honour rather than on him who receives it. But the good we divine to be something of one's own and not easily taken from one. Further, men seem to pursue honour in order that they may be assured of their merit. At least it is by men of practical wisdom that they seek to be honoured, and among those who know them, and on the ground of their virtue. Clearly, then, according to them, at any rate, virtue is better. And perhaps one might even suppose this to be, rather than honour, the end of the political life. But even this appears somewhat incomplete, for possession of virtue seems actually compatible with being asleep, or with lifelong inactivity, 
and further with the greatest sufferings and misfortunes. But a man who was living so no one would call happy unless he were maintaining a thesis at all costs. But enough of this, for the subject has been sufficiently treated even in the popular discussions. Third comes a contemplative life, which we shall consider later. The life of money-making is one undertaken under compulsion, and wealth is evidently not the good we are seeking, for it is merely useful for the sake of something else. And so one might rather take the aforenamed objects to be ends, for they are loved for themselves, but it is evident that not even these are ends. Yet many arguments have been wasted on the support of them. Let us leave this subject then. 7. The good must be something final and self-sufficient. Definition of happiness reached by considering the characteristic function of man. Let us again return to the good we are seeking and ask what it can be. It seems different in different actions and arts. It is different in medicine, in strategy, and in the other arts likewise. What then is the good of each? Surely that for those whose sake everything else is done. In medicine, this is health, in strategy, victory, in architecture, a house, in any other, other sphere, something else. And in every action and pursuit, the end, for it is for the sake of this that all men do whatever else they do. Therefore, if there is an end for all that we do, this will be the good achievable by an action. And if there are more than one, these will be the goods achievable by action. So the argument has, by a different course, reached the same point. But we must try to state this even more clearly. Since there are evidently more than one end, and we choose some of these, for example, wealth, flutes, and general instruments, for the sake of something else, clearly not all ends are final ends, but the chief good is evidently something final. Therefore, if there is only one final end, this will be what we are seeking. And if there are more than one, the most final of these will be what we are seeking. Now we call that which is in itself worthy of pursuit more final than that which is worthy of pursuit for the sake of something else. And that which is never desirable for the sake of something else more final than the things that are desirable both in themselves and for the sake of that other thing. And therefore we call final without qualification that which is always desirable in itself and never for the sake of something else. Now such a thing, happiness, above all else, is held to be. 
For this we choose always for itself and never for the sake of something else. But honour, pleasure, reason and every virtue we choose indeed for themselves. And for if nothing resulted from them, we should still choose each of them. But we choose them also for the sake of happiness, judging that through them we shall be happy. Happiness, on the other hand, no one chooses for the sake of these, nor, in general, for anything other than itself. From the point of view of self-sufficiency, the same result seems to follow, for the final good is thought to be self-sufficient. Now, by self-sufficient, we do not mean that which is sufficient for a man by himself, for one who lives a solitary life, but also for parents, children, wife, and in general for his friends and fellow citizens, since man is born for citizenship. But some limit must be set to this. For if we extend our requirement to ancestors and descendants and friends' friends, we are in for an infinite series. Let us examine this question, however, on another occasion. The self-sufficient we now define as that which, when isolated, makes life desirable and lacking in nothing. And such we think happiness to be. And further, we think it most desirable of all things. Not a thing counted as one good thing among others. If it were so counted, it would clearly be made more desirable by the addition of even the least of goods. For that which is added becomes an excess of goods. And of goods, the greater is always more desirable. Happiness, then, is something final and self-sufficient, and is the end of action. Presumably, presumably, however, to say that happiness is the chief good seems a platitude, and a clearer account of what it is is still desired. This might perhaps be given if we could first ascertain the function of man. For just as for a flute player, a sculptor, or any artist, and in general for all things that have a function or activity, the good and the well is thought to reside in the function. So would it seem to be for man, and if he has a function? So would it seem to be for man, if he has a function. Have the carpenter, then, and the tanner certain functions or activities, and has man none? Is he born without a function, or as eye, hand, foot, and in general each of these parts evidently has a function? May one lay it down that man similarly has a function apart from all these. What then can this be? Life seems to belong even to plants, but we are seeking what is peculiar to man. Let us exclude, therefore, the life of nutrition and growth. Next, there would be a life of perception, but it also seems to be shared even by the horse, the ox, and every animal. 
there remains then an active life of the element that has a rational principle. Of this, one part has such a principle in the sense of being obedient to one, the other in the sense of possessing one and exercising thought. And as life of the rational element also has two meanings, we must state that life in the sense of activity is what we mean. For this seems to be the more proper sense of the term. Now, if the function of man is an activity of soul, which follows or implies a rational principle, and if we say a say so-and-so and a good so-and-so have a function which is the same in kind, e.g. a liar player and a good liar player, and so without qualification in all cases, eminence in respect of goodness being added to the name of the function, for the function of a liar player is to play the liar, and that of a good liar player is to do so well. If this is the case, and we state the function of man to be a certain kind of life, and this to be an activity or actions of the soul implying a rational principle, and the function of a good man to be the good and noble performance of these, and if any action is well performed when it is performed in accordance with the appropriate excellence. If this is the case, human good turns out to be an activity of soul-exhibiting excellence, and if there are more than one excellence in accordance with the best and most complete excellence. But we must add in a complete life. For one swallow does not make a summer, nor does one day, and so too one day or a short time does not make a man blessed and happy. Let this serve as an outline for the good, for we must presumably first sketch it roughly, then later fill in the details. But it would seem that any one is capable of carrying on and articulating what has once been well outlined, and that time is a good discoverer or partner in such a work, to which facts the advances of the arts are due, for any one can add what is lacking, and we must also remember what has been said before and not look for precision in all things alike, but in each class of things such precision as accords with the subject matter, and so much as it is appropriate to the inquiry. For a carpenter and a geometer investigate the right angle but in different ways. The former does so insofar as the right angle is useful for his work, while the latter inquires what it is or what sort of thing it is, for he is a spectator of the truth. We must act in the same way then, in all other matters as well, that our main task may not be subordinated to minor questions, nor must we demand the cause in all matters alike. It is enough in some cases that the fact be well established as in the case of the first principles. The fact is a primary thing 
and first principle. Now, of first principles, we see some by induction, some by perception, some by a certain habituation, and others too in other ways. But each set of principles, we must try to investigate in them the natural way. And we must take pains to determine them correctly, since they have a great influence on what follows. For the beginning is thought to be more than half of the whole, and many of the questions we ask are cleared up by it. Our definition is confirmed by current beliefs about happiness. 8. But we must consider happiness in the light, not only of our conclusion and our premises, but also of what is commonly said about it. For with a true view, all the data harmonize, but with a false one, the facts soon clash. Now, goods have been divided into three classes, and some are described as external, others as relating to soul or to body. We call those that relate to soul most properly and truly goods, and physical actions and activities we class as relating to soul. Therefore, our account must be sound, at least according to this view, which is an old one and agreed on by philosophers. It is correct also in that we identify the end with certain actions and activities, for thus it falls among goods of the soul and not among external goods. Another belief which harmonizes with our account is that the happy man lives well and fares well. For we have practically defined happiness as a sort of living and faring well. The characteristics that are looked for in happiness seem also, all of them, to belong to what we have defined happiness as being. For some identify happiness with virtue, some with practical wisdom, others with a kind of philosophic wisdom. Others with these, or one of these, accompanied by pleasure, or not without pleasure, while others include also external prosperity. Now some of these views have been held by many men and men of old, others by a few eminent persons, and it is not probable that either of these should be entirely mistaken, but rather that they should be right in at least some one respect, or even in most respects. With those who identify happiness with virtue, or some one virtue, our account is in harmony. For to virtue belongs virtuous activity. But it makes perhaps no small difference whether we place the chief good in possession or in use, in state of mind or in activity, for the state of mind may exist without producing any good result, as in a man who is asleep or in some other way quite inactive. But the activity cannot, for one who has the activity will of necessity be acting and acting well. And as in the Olympic Games, it is not the most beautiful and the strongest that are crowned, but those who compete, for it is some of these that are victorious. So those who act 
win, and rightly win, the noble and good things in life. Their soul is also in itself pleasant, for pleasure is a state of soul, and to each man that which he is said to be a lover of is pleasant. E.g., not only is a horse pleasant to the lover of horses, and a spectacle to the lover of sights, but also in the same way just acts are pleasant to the lover of justice, and in general virtuous acts to the lover of virtue. Now for most men their pleasures are in conflict with one another, because these are not by nature pleasant. But the lovers of what is noble find pleasant the things that are by their nature pleasant. And virtuous actions are such, so that these are pleasant for such men as well as in their own nature. Their life, therefore, has no further need of pleasure as a sort of adventitious charm, but has its pleasure in itself. For... Besides what we have said, the man who does not rejoice in noble actions is not even good, since no one would call a man just who did not enjoy acting justly, nor any man liberal who did not enjoy liberal actions, and similarly in all other cases. If this is so, virtuous actions must be in themselves pleasant, but they are also good and noble and have each of these attributes in the highest degree. Since the good man judges well about these attributes, his judgment is such as we have described. Happiness, then, is the best, noblest, and most pleasant thing in the world, and these attributes are not served as in the inscription of Delos. Most noble is that which is justice and best in health, but most pleasant it is to win what we love. For all these properties belong to the best activities, and these, or one, the best of these, we identify with happiness. Yet, evidently, as we said, it needs the external goods as well, for it's impossible or not easy to do noble acts without the proper equipment. In many actions, we use friends and riches and political power as instruments, and there are some things the lack of which takes the luster from happiness, good birth, goodly children, beauty. For the man who is very ugly in appearance or ill-born or solitary and childless is not very likely to be happy. And perhaps a man would be still less likely if he had thoroughly bad children or friends or had lost good children or friends by death. As we said then, happiness seems to need this sort of prosperity in addition. For which reason some identify happiness with good fortune, though others identify it with virtue. End of book one. Book two, Moral Virtue. Moral virtue, how produced, in what medium, and in what manner exhibited. One. Moral virtue, like the arts, is acquired by repetition of the corresponding acts. 
Virtue, then, being of two kinds, intellectual and moral, intellectual virtue is the main, owes both its birth and its growth to teaching, for which reason it requires experience and time, while moral virtue comes about as a result of habit. Whence also its name is one that is formed by a slight variation of the word habit. From this, it is also plain that none of the moral virtues arise in us by nature. For nothing that exists by nature can form a habit contrary to its own nature. For instance, the stone which by nature moves downwards cannot be habituated to move upwards, not even if one tries to train it by throwing it up 10,000 times, nor can fire be habituated to move downwards, nor can anything else that by nature behaves in one way be trained to behave in another. Neither by nature then, nor contrary to nature, do the virtues arise in us. Rather, we are adapted by nature to receive them and are made perfect by habit. Again, of all the things that come to us by nature, we first acquire the potentiality and later exhibit the activity. This is plain in the case of the senses, for it was not by often seeing or often hearing that we got these senses, but on the contrary, we had them before we used them and did not come to have them by using them. But the virtues we get by first exercising them, as also happens in the case of the arts as well. For the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. For example, men become builders by building and lyre players by playing the lyre. So too, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. This is confirmed by what happens in states, for legislators make the citizens good by forming habits in them, and this is the wish of every legislator, and those who do not affect it miss their mark. And it is in this that a good constitution differs from a bad one. Again, it is from the same causes and by the same means that every virtue is both produced and destroyed, and similarly every art. For it is from playing the lyre that both good and bad lyre players are produced. And the corresponding statement is true of builders and all the rest. Men will be good or bad builders as a result of building well or badly. For if this were not so, There would have been no need of a teacher, but all men would have been born good or bad at their craft. This, then, is the case with the virtues also. By doing the acts that we do in our transactions with other men, we become just or unjust. And by doing the acts that we do in the presence of danger, and by being habituated to feel fear or confidence, we become brave or cowardly. And the same is true of appetites and feelings of anger. Some men become temperate and good-tempered, others self-indulgent or irascible, by behaving in one way or the other in the appropriate circumstances. Thus, in one word, states of character arise out of like activities. This is why the activities we exhibit must be of a certain kind. 
It is because the states of character correspond to the differences between these. It makes no small difference then whether we form habits of one kind or of another from our very youth. It makes a very great difference, or rather all the difference. 2. These acts cannot be prescribed exactly, but must avoid excess and defect. Since, then, the present inquiry does not aim at theoretical knowledge like the others, for we are inquiring not in order to know what a virtue is, but in order to become good, since otherwise our inquiry would have been of no use, we must examine the nature of actions, namely, how we ought to do them, for these determine also the nature of the states of character that are produced, as we have said. Now, that we must act accordingly to the right rule is a common principle and must be assumed. It will be discussed later, i.e. both what the right rule is and how it is related to other virtues. But this must be agreed upon beforehand, that the whole account of matters of conduct must be given in outline and not precisely, as we said, at the very beginning. That the accounts we demand must be in accordance with the subject matter. Matters concerned with conduct and questions of what is good for us to have no fixity, any more than matters of health. The general account being of this nature, the account of particular cases is yet more lacking in exactness, for they do not fall under any art or precept, but the agents themselves must in each case consider what is appropriate to the occasion, as happens also in the art of medicine or of navigation. But though our present account is of this nature, we must give what help we can. First then, let us consider this, that it is the nature of such things to be destroyed by defect and excess as we see in the case of strength and of health. For to gain light on things imperceptible, we must use the evidence of sensible things. Exercise, either excessive or defective, destroys the strength. And similarly, drink or food, which is above or below a certain amount, destroys the health. While that which is proportionate both produces and increases and preserves it. So too is it then in the case of temperance and courage and other virtues. For the man who flies from and fears everything and does not stand his ground against anything becomes a coward. And the man who fears nothing at all but goes to meet every danger becomes rash. And similarly, the man who indulges in every pleasure and abstains from none becomes self-indulgent, while the man who shuns every pleasure, as boars do, becomes in an, a way insensible. Temperance and courage, then, are destroyed by excess and defect, and preserved by the mean. But not only are the sources and causes of their origination and growth the same as those of their destruction, but also the sphere of their actualization will be the same.
For this is also true of the things which are more evident to sense, e.g. of strength. It is produced by taking much food and undergoing much exertion, and it is the strong man that will be most able to do these things. So too is it with the virtues. By abstaining from pleasures, we become temperate, and it is when we have become so that we are most able to abstain from them. And similarly too in the case of courage, for by being habituated to despise things that are fearful and to stand our ground against them, we have become brave. And it is when we have become so that we shall be most able to stand our ground against them. 3. Pleasure in doing virtuous acts is a sign that the virtuous disposition has been acquired. A variety of considerations show the essential connection of moral virtue with pleasure and pain. We must take as a sign of states of character the pleasure or pain that supervenes upon acts. For the man who abstains from bodily pleasures and delights in this very fact is temperate, while the man who is annoyed at it is self-indulgent. And he who stands his ground against things that are terrible and delights in this or at least is not pained is brave, while the man who is pained is a coward. For moral excellence is concerned with pleasures and pains. It is on account of the pleasure that we do bad things, and on account of the pain that we abstain from noble ones. Hence, we ought to have been brought up in a particular way from our very youth, as Plato says, so as both to delight in and to be pained by the things that we ought. This is the right education. Again, if the virtues are concerned with actions and passions, and every passion and every action is accompanied by pleasure and pain, for this reason also virtue will be concerned with pleasures and pains. This is indicated also by the fact that punishment is inflicted by these means, for it is a kind of cure, and it is the nature of cures to be affected by contraries. Again, as we said but lately, every state of soul has a nature relative to and concerned with the kind of things by which it tends to be made better or worse. But it is by reason of pleasures and pains that men become bad. By pursuing and avoiding these, either the pleasures and pains they ought not, or when they ought not, or as they ought not, or by going wrong in one of the other similar ways that may be distinguished. Hence, men even define the virtues as certain states of impassivity and rest. Not well, however, because they speak absolutely and do not say as one ought and as one ought not and when one ought and ought not and the other things that may be added. We assume then that this kind of excellence tends to do what is best with regard to pleasures and pains, and vice does the contrary. The following facts may show us that virtue and vice are concerned with these same things, there being three objects of choice and three of avoidance, 
the noble, the advantageous, the pleasant, and their contraries, the base, the injurious, the painful. About all these, the good man tends to go right and the bad man tends to go wrong, and especially about pleasure, for this is common to the animals and also it accompanies all objects of choice, for even the noble and the advantageous appear pleasant. Again, it has grown up with us all from our infancy. This is why it is difficult to rub off this passion, ingrained as it is in our life. And we measure even our actions, some of us more and others less, by the rule of pleasure and pain. For this reason, then, our whole inquiry must be about these. For to feel delight and pain, rightly or wrongly, has no small effect on our actions. Again, it is harder to fight with pleasure than with anger. To use Heraclitus' phrase, but both art and virtue are always concerned with what is harder. For even the good is better when it is harder. Therefore, for this reason also, the whole concern both of virtue and of political science is with pleasures and pains. For the man who uses these well will be good, he who uses them badly, bad. That virtue, then, is concerned with pleasures and pains, and that by the acts from which it arises, it is both increased and if they are done differently, destroyed. And that the acts from which it arose are those in which it actualizes itself. Let this be taken as said. 4. The actions that produce moral virtue are not good in the same sense as those that flow from it. The later must fulfill certain conditions not necessary in the case of the arts. The question might be asked, what we mean by saying that we must become just by doing just acts, and temperate by doing temperate acts. For if men do just and temperate acts, they are already just and temperate, exactly as if they do what is in accordance with the laws of grammar and of music, they are grammarians and music musicians. Or is this not true even of the arts? It's possible to do something that is in accordance with the laws of grammar, either by chance or under the guidance of another. A man will be a grammarian then only when he has both said something grammatical and said it grammatically. And this means doing it in accordance with the grammatical knowledge in himself. Again, the case of the arts and that of the virtues are not similar, for the products of the arts have their goodness in themselves, so that it is enough that they should have a certain character. But if the acts that are in accordance with the virtues have themselves a certain character, it does not follow that they are done justly or temperately. The agent also must be in a certain condition when he does them. In the first place, he must have knowledge. Secondly, he must choose the acts and choose them for their own sakes. And thirdly, his action must proceed from a firm and unchangeable character. 
These are not reckoned in as conditions of the possession of the arts, except the bare knowledge, but as a condition of the possession of the virtues, knowledge has little or no weight, while the other conditions count not for a little, but for everything, i.e., the very conditions which result from often doing just and temperate acts. Actions, then, are called just and temperate when they are such as the just or temperate man would do. But it is not the man who does these that is just and temperate, but the man who also does them as just and temperate man do them. It is well said, then, that it is by doing just acts that the just man is produced, and by doing temperate acts, the temperate man. Without doing these, no one would have even the prospect of becoming good. But most people do not do these, but take refuge in theory and think they are being philosophers, and will become good in this way. Behaving somewhat like patients who listen attentively to their doctors, but do none of the things they are ordered to do, as the latter will be not made well in body by such a course of treatment. The former will not be made well in soul by such a course of philosophy. 5. Definition of Moral Virtue The Genius of Moral Virtue it is a state of character, not a passion, nor a faculty. Next, we must consider what virtue is. Since things that are found in the soul are of three kinds, passions, faculties, states of character, virtue must be one of these. By passions, I mean appetite, anger, fear, confidence, envy, joy, friendly feeling, hatred, longing, emulation, pity, and in general, the feelings that are accompanied by pleasure and pain. By faculties, the things in virtue of which we are said to be capable of feeling these, e.g. of becoming angry or being pained or feeling pity. By states of character, the things in virtue of which we stand well or badly with reference to the passions, e.g., with reference to anger, we stand badly if we feel it violently or too weakly, and well if we feel it moderately, and similarly with reference to the other passions. Now, neither the virtues nor the vices are passions, because we are not called good or bad on the grounds of our passions, but are so called on the grounds of our virtues and our vices. And because we are neither praised nor blamed for our passions, for the man who feels fear or anger is not praised, nor the man who simply feels anger blamed, but the man who feels it in a certain way, but for our virtues and our vices we are praised or blamed. Again, we feel anger and fear without choice, but the virtues are modes of choice or involve choice. Further, in respect of the passions, we are said to be moved, but in respect of the virtues and the vices, we are said not to be moved, but to be disposed in a particular way. For these reasons also, they are not faculties, for we are neither good nor bad, nor praised or blamed for the simple capacity of feeling the passions, 
again, we have the faculties by nature, but we are not made good or bad by nature. We have spoken of this before. If, then, the virtues are neither passions nor faculties, all that remains is that they should be states of character. Thus, we have stated what virtue is in respect of this genus. 6. The differentia of moral virtue. It is a disposition to choose the mean. We must, however, not only describe virtue as a state of character, but also say what sort of state it is. We may remark, then, that every virtue or excellence both brings into good condition the thing of which it is excellence, and makes the work of that thing to be done well. E.g., the excellence of the eye makes both the eye and its work good. For it is by the excellence of the eye that we see well. Similarly, the excellence of the horse makes a horse both good in itself and good at running and at carrying its rider and at awaiting the attack of the enemy. Therefore, if this is true in every case, the virtue of man also will be the state of character which makes a man good and which makes him do his own work well. How this is to happen, we have stated already, but it will be made plain also by the following consideration of the specific nature of virtue. In everything that is continuous and divisible, it is possible to take more, less, or an equal amount, and that either in terms of the thing itself or relatively to us, and the equal is an intermediate between excess and defect. And by the intermediate in the object, I mean that which is equidistant distant from each of these extremes, which is one and the same for all men. By the intermediate relatively to us, that which is neither too much nor too little. And this is not one nor the same for all. For instance, if ten is many and two is few, Six is the intermediate, taken in terms of the object, for it exceeds and is exceeded by an equal amount. This is intermediate according to arithmetical proportion. But the intermediate relatively to us is not taken to be so. If 10 pounds are too much for a particular person to eat and two too little, it does not follow that the trainer will order six pounds, for this is also perhaps too much for the person who is to take it or too little. Too little for Milo, too much for the beginner in athletic exercises. The same is true of running and wrestling. Thus, a master of any art avoids excess and defect, but seeks the intermediate and chooses this. The intermediate, not in the object, but relative to us. If it is thus, then, that every art does its work well by looking to the intermediate and judging its works by this standard, 
So that we often say of good works of art that it is not possible either to take away or to add anything, implying that excess or defect destroy the goodness of works of art while the mean preserves it, and good artists, as we say, look to this in their work. And if, further, virtue is more exact and better than any art, as nature also is, then virtue must have the quality of aiming at the intermediate. I mean moral virtue, for it is this that is concerned with passions and actions, and in these there are there is excess, defect, and the intermediate. For instance, both fear and confidence, and appetite and anger, and pity, and in general pleasure and pain, may be felt both too much and too little, and in both cases not well. But to feel them at the right times, with reference to the right objects, towards the right people, with the right motive, and in the right way, is what is both intermediate and best. And this is characteristic of virtue. Similarly, with regard to actions also, there is excess, defect, and the intermediate. Now, virtue is concerned with passions and actions, in which excess is a form of failure, and so is defect. While the intermediate is praised and is a form of success, and being praised and being successful are both characteristics of virtue. Therefore, virtue is a kind of mean, since, as we have seen, it aims at what is intermediate. Again, it is possible to fail in many ways, for evil belongs to the class of the unlimited, as the Pythagoreans conjectured, and good to that of the limited. While to succeed is possible only in one way, for which reason also one is easy and the other difficult, to miss the mark, to hit it difficult. For these reasons also then, excess and defect are characteristic of vice and the mean of virtue. For men are good in but one way, but bad in many. Virtue then is a state of character concerned with choice, lying in a mean, i.e. the mean relative to us, this being determined by a rational principle, and by that principle by which the man of practical wisdom would determine it. Now, it is a mean between two vices, that which depends on excess and that which depends on defect. And again, it is a mean because the vices respectively fall short of or exceed what is right in both passions and actions, while virtue both finds and chooses that which is intermediate. Hence, in respect of what it is, i.e. the definition which states its essence, virtue is a mean with regard to what is best and right and extreme. But not every action nor every passion admits of a mean, for some have names that already imply badness, e.g. spite, shamefulness, envy, and in the case of actions, adultery, theft, murder. For all of these and such like things imply by their names that they are themselves bad 
and not the excesses or deficiencies of them. It is not possible then ever to be right with regard to them. One must always be wrong. Nor does goodness or badness with regard to such things depend on committing adultery with the right woman at the right time and in the right way, but simply to do any of them is to go wrong. It would be equally absurd then to expect that in unjust, cowardly, and voluptuous action, there should be a mean, an excess, and a deficiency, for at that rate there would be a mean of excess and of deficiency, an excess of excess, and a deficiency of deficiency. But as there is no excess and deficiency of temperance and courage, because what is intermediate is in a sense an extreme. So too of the actions we have mentioned, there is no mean nor any excess and deficiency, but however they are done, they are wrong. For in general, there is neither a mean of excess and deficiency, nor excess and deficiency of a mean. 7. The above proposition illustrated by reference to a particular virtues. We must, however, not only make this general statement, but also apply it to the individual facts. For among statements about conduct, those which are general apply more widely, but those which are particular are more true. Since conduct has to do with individual cases, and our statements must harmonise with the facts in these cases, we may take these cases from our table. With regard to feelings of fear and confidence, courage is the mean. Of the people who exceed, he who exceeds in fearlessness has no name. Many of the states have no name. While the man who exceeds in confidence is rash. And he who exceeds in fear and falls short in confidence is a coward. With regard to pleasures and pains, not all of them and not so much with regards to the pains, the mean is temperance. The excess is self-indulgence. Persons deficient with regard to the pleasures are not often found. Hence, such persons also have received no name, but let us call them insensible. With regard to giving and taking of money, the mean is liberality, the excess and the defect, prodigality and meanness. In these actions, people exceed and fall short in contrary ways. The prodigal exceeds in spending and falls short in taking, while the mean man exceeds in taking and falls short in spending. At present, we are giving a mere outline or summary and are satisfied with this. Later, these states will become more exactly determined. With regard to money, there are also other dispositions. A mean magnificence, for the magnificent man differs from the liberal man. The former deals with large sums and the latter with small ones. An excess, tastelessness and vulgarity, and a deficiency, niggardliness, these differ from the states opposed to liberality. And the mode of their difference will be stated later. With regard to honour and dishonour, the mean is proper pride. The excess is known as a sort of empty vanity, 
and the deficiency is undue humility. And as we said, liberality was related to magnificence, differing from it by dealing with small sums, so there is a state similarly related to proper pride, being concerned with small honours, while that is concerned with great. For it is possible to desire honour as one ought, and more than one ought, and less, and the man who exceeds in his desires is called ambitious, and the man who falls short, unambitious, while the intermediate person has no name. The dispositions are also nameless, except that that of the ambitious man is called ambition. Hence, the people who are at the extremes lay claim to the middle place. And we ourselves sometimes call the intermediate person ambitious and sometimes unambitious and sometimes praise the ambitious man and sometimes the unambitious. The reason of our doing this will be stated in what follows. But now let us speak of the remaining states according to the method which has been indicated. With regard to anger also, there is an excess, a deficiency and a mean. Although they can be scarcely said to have names, yet since we call the intermediate person good-tempered, let us call the mean good-temper. And the person at the extremes, let the one who exceeds be called irascible, and his rice irascibility. And the man who falls short, an unirascible sort of person, and the deficiency, unirascibility. There are also three other means which have a certain likeness to one another but differ from one another, for they are all concerned with intercourse in words and actions, but differ in that one is concerned with truth in this sphere, the other two with pleasantness. And of this one kind is exhibited in giving amusement, the other in all the other circumstances of life. We must therefore speak of these two, that we may the better see that in all things the mean is praiseworthy, and the extremes neither praiseworthy nor right, but worthy of blame. Now, most of these states also have no names, but we must try, as in other cases, to invent names ourselves so that we may be clear and easy to follow. With regard to truth, then, the intermediate is a truthful sort of person, and the mean may be called truthfulness, while the pretense which exaggerates is boastfulness, and the person characterised by it a boaster, and that which understates is mock modesty, and the person characterised by it mock modest. With regard to pleasantness in the giving of amusement, the intermediate person is ready-witted, and the disposition ready-wit. The excess is buffoonery, and the person characterised by it a buffoon, while the man who falls short is a sort of bore, and his state is boorishness. With regard to the remaining kind of pleasantness, that which is exhibited in life in general, the man who is pleasant in the right way is friendly, and the mean is friendliness, while the man who exceeds is an obsequious person if he has no end in view, a flatterer if he is aiming at his own advantage, the man who falls short is an unpleasant in all circumstances, is a quarrelsome and surly sort of person. There are also means in the passions and concerned with the passions, since shame is not a virtue, 
and yet praise is extended to the modest man. For even in these matters, one man is said to be intermediate and another to exceed. As, for instance, the baffle man who is ashamed of everything, while he who falls short or is not ashamed of anything at all is shameless, and the intermediate person is modest. Righteous indignation is a mean between envy and spite, and these states are concerned with the pain and pleasure that are felt at the fortunes of our neighbours. The man who is characterized by righteous indignation is pained at underserved good fortune. The envious man, going beyond him, is pained at all good fortune, and the spiteful man falls just so far short of being pained that he even rejoices. But these states, there will be an opportunity of describing elsewhere. With regard to justice, since it has not one simple meaning, we shall, after describing the other states, distinguish its two kinds and say how each of them is a mean. And similarly, we shall treat also of the rational virtues. 8. Characteristics of the extreme and mean states. Practical corollaries. The extreme states are opposed to each other and to the mean. There are three kinds of disposition, then, two of them vices, involving excess and deficiency respectively, and one virtue, the mean, and all are in a sense opposed to all. For the extreme states are contrary both to the intermediate state and to each other, and the intermediate to the extremes, as the equal is greater relatively to the less, less relatively to the greater. So the middle states are excessive relatively to the deficiencies, deficient relatively to the excesses, both in passions and in actions. For the brave man appears rash relatively to the coward and the cowardly relatively to the rash man. And similarly to the temperate man appears self-indulgent relatively to the insensible man, insensible relatively to the self-indulgent. And the liberal man prodigal relatively to the mean man, the mean relative to the prodigal. Hence, also the people at the extremes push the intermediate man each over to the other, and the brave man is called rash by the coward, cowardly by the rash man, and correspondingly in the other cases. These states being thus opposed to one another, the greatest contrariety is that of the extremes to each other rather than to the intermediate. For these are further from each other than from the intermediate, as the great is further from the small and the small from the great, than both are from the equal. Again, to the intermediate, some extremes show like a certain likeness, as that of rashness and courage to that of prodigality and liberality. But the extremes show the greatest unlikeness to each other. Now, contraries are defined as the things that are furthest from each other, so that things that are further apart are more contrary. 
to the mean in some cases the deficiency, in some the excess is more opposed. E.g., it is not rashness which is an excess, but cowardice which is a deficiency. That is more opposed to courage, and not insensibility, which is a deficiency, but self-indulgence, which is an excess that is more opposed to temperance. This happens for two reasons. One being drawn from the thing itself, for because one extreme is nearer and liker to the intermediate, we oppose not this, but rather its contrary to the intermediate. E.g., since rashness is thought liker and nearer to courage and cowardice more unlike, we oppose rather the latter to courage. For things that are further from the intermediate are thought more contrary to it. This then is one cause drawn from the thing itself. Another is drawn from ourselves, for the things to which we ourselves more naturally tend seem more contrary to the intermediate. For instance, we ourselves tend more naturally to pleasures, and hence are more easily carried away towards self-indulgence than towards propriety. We describe as contrary to the mean, then, rather the directions in which we more often go to great lengths, and therefore self-indulgence, which is an excess, is the more contrary to temperance. 9. The mean is hard to attain, and is grasped by perception, not by reasoning. That moral virtue is a mean, then, and in what sense it is so, and that it is a mean between two vices, and one involving its excess, the other deficiency, and that it is such because its character is to aim at what is intermediate in passions and in actions has been sufficiently stated. Hence, also it is no easy task to be good, for in everything it is no easy task to find the middle. E.g., to find the middle of a circle is not for everyone, but for him who knows. So too, anyone can get angry, that is easy, or give or spend money. But to do this to the right person, to the right extent, at the right time, with the right motive and in the right way, that is not for everyone, nor is it easy. Wherefore, goodness is both rare and laudable and noble. Hence, he who aims at the intermediate must first depart from what is the more contrary to it, as Calypso advises. Hold the ship out beyond that surf and spray. For of the extremes, one is more erroneous, one less so. Therefore, since to hit the mean is hard in the extreme, we must, as a second best, as people say, take the least of the evils, and this will be done best in the way we describe. But we must consider the things towards which we ourselves also are easily carried away. For some of us tend to one thing, some to another, and this will be recognisable from the pleasure and pain we feel. We must drag ourselves away to the contrary extreme, for we shall get into the intermediate state by drawing well away from error, 
as people do in straightening sticks that are bent. Now in everything, the pleasant or pleasure is most to be guarded against, for we do not judge it impartially. We ought then to feel towards pleasure as the elders of the people felt towards Helen, and in all circumstances repeat their saying. For if we dismiss pleasure, thus we are less likely to go astray. It is by doing this then, to sum up the matter, that we shall best be able to hit the mean. But this is no doubt difficult, and especially in individual cases, for it is not easy to determine both how and with whom and on what provocation and how long one should be angry. For we too sometimes praise those who fall short and call themselves good-tempered, but sometimes we praise those who get angry and call them manly. The man, however, who deviates little from goodness is not blamed, whether he do so in the direction of the more or of the less, but only the man who deviates more widely, for he does not fail to be noticed. But up to what point and to what extent a man must deviate before he becomes blameworthy, it is not easy to determine by reasoning any more than anything else that is perceived by the senses. Such things depend on particular facts, and the decision rests with perception. So much, then, is plain, that the intermediate state is in all things to be praised, but that we must incline sometimes towards the excess, sometimes towards the deficiency, for so shall we most easily hit the mean and what is right. End 